We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. What is holding you back from changing and creating a fulfilling and meaningful life? The answer is most probably fear. It can be completely overwhelming, keeping us trapped and our goals just out of reach. Not surprisingly, we tend to back down and go for safe and comfortable instead. But what if instead of focusing on big-ticket adventures to combat your fears, you did small, regular acts of bravery? That's the philosophy of my witness today. Scott Simon is a coach, a leader of mindfulness meditations, and the author of Scare Your Soul, Seven Powerful Principles to Harness Fear and Lead Your Most Courageous Life. He's also the founder of Scare Your Soul, a movement inspiring individual and global change through small acts of courage. After leaving college, you weren't very sure about what you were going to do, and you took up a job that your father had arranged through a friend halfway across the world. On a plane, you felt scared, miserable, and not enough. Something had to change, didn't it? And it did. Tell me about the young man on the flight and what happened. The young man on the flight was scared out of his mind. I had lived a very, very quiet, almost invisible life and had agreed, because my life at the moment had no direction, to fly overseas to teach English to Holocaust survivors in Israel. Wow. (laughs) To this day, I don't know why I said yes. In fact, saying yes to me now feels like the most powerful word that any of us can wield. But I said yes, and on that flight, I had a panic attack completely lost composure and with the sweat pouring down my forehead and lots of uh, incredibly intense heartbeats, I pulled out a spiral notebook that was in my backpack and I wrote out eight words. And those eight words turned out to change my life. And they were, do one thing every day that scares you. And in the moment, I didn't even know what it meant, Andrew, but Very quickly, I realized that it was a mandate, and that mandate was to do one thing that I I could every single day to push a comfort zone, and that completely changed my life. And this is actually a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. Did you know the quote, or did it just come out of nowhere? I knew the quote. I had studied Roosevelt when I was in college. But the quote literally came from nowhere. I mean, it, it was it was one of those you know epiphanies that we have every every once in a while in life, where something gets unlocked, and a lot of times it's due to stress or crisis. But for me, that moment just unlocked that phrase, and I, I think living a life prior to that that felt so fearful, I finally stood up, and that was my way of standing up was to say, I'm not going to let fear define me. I'm not going to let fear hold me back the way that it has for 21 years. And instead, 
I was going to tackle it bite by bite, just like you do when you eat an elephant. It's bite by bite. And that really, at the end of the day, made all of the difference and has made the difference for the rest of my life. I can really understand that 21-year-old because when I was 20, I was also on a flight to Israel, um, (laughs) amazingly enough. (laughs) And I mean, this was in the late 70s, so and I was literally flying into the unknown. Mm. So what was the first thing that you did that scared your soul when you arrived in Israel? Yeah, I arrived in the middle of the night to a very, very dusty, brown, almost vacant, lower-income neighborhood of Tel Aviv. And my first moment of scaring my soul was meeting my new family, who I could not communicate with. I did not speak a word of Hebrew, and they spoke no English. And that began this unbelievable year of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Do I have the resources? Do I have the tools? Can I do this? And somehow, before Google Translate and before GPS, I was able to, over the course of that year, in small bites, find my way back to myself, to who I really was. And it was through these small acts of saying, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do it. And that first one was at one o'clock in the morning, greeting my new family that I would live with, which was a scary but yet unbelievable experience. And so what did you learn from Holocaust survivors? Because that really is a privilege, I think, to have spent time with them. I can't tell you the impact that they had on me. I found in many ways that the dignity by which they led their lives after that horrendous experience gave me ultimate perspective, that if they could see the depths of humanity, come out the other side and have faith, love, passion, compassion, then I, who, yes, suffered some challenges in my youth, for sure, that I could stand up in this world. And I will never forget the love and caring and passion that they showed me after having seen the worst that any human being could see. So in a way, and you know, for those who have read Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, you know, man's ultimate liberation is the choice we make in our own minds, in our own lives, to have a positive perspective. And for me, being with them, having all of a sudden 20 or 30 grandparents that wanted to adopt me and that I could spend time with and hear their stories and validate their their lives and experiences. Oh my gosh, what a privilege. Because from my understanding, the state of Israel in that point, they were not really encouraging these people to talk about their experiences. Absolutely not. You're 100% right. You know when I did it? I did it when I was playing chess with the men. I did it when I was sitting with the women who were knitting they would take my classes and then they would immediately, the men would go into one room and play chess and the, and the women would go into another and crochet and knit. And it was in those moments of quiet, in those moments of kind of vulnerability and honesty, that's when the stories came out. And, you know, like any of your, I'm sure guests have expressed, listening is such an underrated virtue in this world. We are so oftentimes prepared with a witty response, with an action plan, with with a retort. And that year allowed me the beauty of sitting back and just 
listening. And that listening inspired me in ways that motivate me to this day. In what ways? Their stories stick with me. I was just in Israel last week working with uh, young entrepreneurs and with leaders, helping them push forward in their own lives. And I find that those stories are almost like they're in my bones. I was so touched and empowered, again, not just by the, the terror of what they went through, but the dignity by which they emerged from it. And to have faith after an experience like that, to me is, you know, I, I do work a bit in this courage world. And to me, the concept of faith, the concept of compassion, the concept of forgiveness, my Lord, I'm a huge advocate for the courage that resides within an act of forgiveness. And I saw all of that just come to bloom in front of me in all of these conversations that I had. So give me an example of something that's in your bones, a story from those times. Sure. There was a woman who was crocheting. She would crochet these beautiful flowers. It was kind of everything that she did was a flower. And at one point I said to her, you know, why are you crocheting flowers all the time? Why do you love flowers so much? Just evoking a conversation. And she said that she and her family, her father had been in the flower business and their entire family had been rounded up, put into a ghetto and then into a concentration camp, had lost her entire family. And the thing that she remembered most was the beauty of flowers. And so her room in her very small apartment in this little hamlet in, on the north side of Tel Aviv was full of flowers. And she continued to bring forth this concept of a flower. And I thought, how incredibly beautiful and powerful that is. That was, she is, she is honoring her past and not denying it, but bringing it forward. And Andrew, I think a huge part of the beauty of the work that I get to do with people is to frame courage in an act of service that oftentimes when we're confronted with something that we need to do or, or could do, but we're stepping into a moment of fear, there's fear present that if we frame it as an act of service to somebody else, what could this do to help somebody else? It allows us in some small way to move forward. And by crocheting these beautiful flowers and handing them out, giving them out, gifting them, she was taking something from her past and gifting it into the future. I just can't tell you how important these little anecdotes have been for me in my life. And and whenever I, whenever I see a visual representation of a flower now, no matter where it is, what museum it is around the world, that's what I think of. That's beautiful. I'm feeling quite tearful. <laughs> so I think we should sort of ground it, this conversation down into everyday things that we all experience and we can uh, relate to because, thank goodness, we're not going to be going through experiences like those survivors that you met. Indeed. So let's have the story of how you started Scare Your Soul movement, because this is a sort of fear that every one of us can actually relate to. So it was something terribly ordinary, but actually very scary for you. So tell us about that. Sure. Which I, I think you just so beautifully articulated what the human experience is. Some, sometimes the most ordinary experiences in our lives become the most defining. And when you hear somebody else's story, it's almost like a mirror that, that my story is your story and your story is mine. My story very quickly starts when I was 10 years old. I was very shy, 
I had been bullied by two boys who had dislocated my arm a number of times and, and really just savaged me and did it publicly and in front of others, in front of my grade. It was just a really hard time. And when I was 10, I was in a choir, a school choir, and we had a substitute choir teacher who would oftentimes come to school in this bright Hawaiian-themed shirt with these big palm trees on it. I, I remember it. This is when I was 10, and I remember it like it was yesterday. And he had given us a song to sing for our holiday concert, and he gave me a solo line in this song. The song was 76 Trombones, which is from a musical called The Music Man. Yep, I've seen it. It's a, it's a great musical. <laughs> it's lovely. It's lovely, but it became my tormentor, and I will explain why. So he had given me a solo line in the song, and when it came around to me singing my solo line, I was so shy and so reticent that my throat closed up. I couldn't sing the line. And instead of just bypassing it, continuing on, or assigning somebody else, or tutoring me, he started it over and over and over again. And each time I turned brighter red, I remember the feeling of fear and embarrassment in my body. And finally, after the third time, he came storming up to me and said to me, essentially, you're embarrassing yourself and this entire grade. Just mouth the words for the rest of the year. Wow. And I will be honest with you, I did not sing in public again for 35 years. And so what was your return to public singing like? Well, it was a moment after meeting a, a wonderful professor at Harvard who has become my mentor, a gentleman named Tal Ben-Shahar, who teaches positive psychology and the science of happiness and human flourishing. And I became very interested in small acts of courage that unlock our lives from an academic standpoint and a practical standpoint. And I thought, you know what? I am going to remove this demon from my shoulder. This thing had been sitting on me for 35 years. So I grabbed a guitar, an acoustic guitar, and I went to the busiest restaurant I could find on a Sunday morning on a beautiful day in May. And the line stretches out to the front door at this restaurant with people getting ready to eat waffles and omelets and incredible tofu scrambles, beautiful breakfasts. And I sang in front of this group of strangers. <laughs> and here's the funny part about it. First of all, I was terrible. <laughs> there was no sense. I'm sure these people were looking at me saying, what is this? young man doing. But there was something so powerful. I was so afraid to do it. I was so nervous to do it. But once I started, it got to be so exciting. And then people started to applaud. And a young kid brought a crumpled bill and threw it into my guitar case and everybody laughed. And then by the time, Andrew, that I was done, like seven or eight minutes later, I felt like I was going to levitate back to my car. It was this unbelievable feeling of freedom, freedom from something that had held me back for 35 years. And I took that power back so easily. I didn't do it well. It wasn't a beautiful experience, but I did it. And I came back home. I was so excited about it that I wrote a post about it. That post went viral around the world. 
was shared hundreds and hundreds of times. And by the next week, I had people around the world texting me and messaging me, asking me to help them be courageous in their own lives. And that was the beginning of a movement that we call Scare Your Soul. Wow. I was just thinking of an equivalent to that. I once decided in the morning that I was going to participate in an event that I'd said no to because how's about this for an event? This is the sort of thing that goes on in Berlin here. So I was invited to go and read something that I've written, and that's pretty naked, except the event was called Naked Boys Reading. So you were going to be naked as well as as doing this. And, and so I said, not surprisingly, no. And I woke up the morning of it and I decided that, in fact, actually that morning I woke up with something I had to write and I then decided I had to read it out at Naked Boys Reading. And oh, so that's I did. fantastic. How did it go? It went really well. It was about being old and not afraid, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And particularly about body consciousness, because I'm 64. So, you know, I'm not the most beautiful body you could possibly see <laughs> reading naked on stage, but it, it didn't matter. So I can sort of relate to that. Perhaps, perhaps next time you sing, you'll have to sing naked just to, to add to the fear. You're both shaming me and inspiring me at one time. I feel like I was being so courageous and yet I was clothed. I will have to take it up a notch. Thank you. I will look for that opportunity. I have to tell you just as a quick aside, I've obviously told this story a number of times because it's a very defining one for me and it's in my book. I cannot tell you the number of people who come up to me and say, I had a choir teacher who told me the same thing. I had a priest or a rabbi or a grandparent who told me that I I was not enough. I was not enough. I couldn't do it. And that sticks with them. And, And so in many cases, Andrew, I think what's so powerful about this work is not that my book or that Scare Your Soul or, or the work that I, I love so much it has hidden answers in it for anyone. There is no top 10 list that I'm going to send anybody that says, this is what you must do and you're going to be a happy and, and fulfilled and flourishing and courageous human being. What I actually love to do is to just give people the permission slip to say, you do have the opportunity, like Viktor Frankl said, to take control of your mind, of your, of your body, of your life, and you can step into moments of courage if you accept the fact that you may fail, that it may be uncomfortable, that you may have to confront what others have told you in your past and redefine yourself. And if it is worth it to you, and I think it absolutely is, then there is this beautiful path ahead of all of us that is full of connection and love and new adventures and experiences and people. And all we have to do, in my view, is the very simple act, doing one thing every single day that pushes our comfort zones and reminding ourselves that we can do it again and again and again. So what did you do yesterday? Thank you for saying that. Yesterday was, I did something that I do about every week. I buy a cup of coffee for a stranger, and I have a conversation with that person as we're waiting for our coffee. This, to me, is almost like going to the courage gym. This is working my courage muscle. And I must tell you, although I've probably done it dozens of times, there is that little butterfly in the stomach. There's a sense of the unknown, what is going to happen. 
And so I bought a cup of coffee yesterday for a woman who owns a tattoo studio. Ooh. <laughs> Lucy is her name. And Lucy, the tattooed lady. Lucy, the tattooed lady. She got a beautiful large cappuccino yesterday and had a beautiful conversation with me because I said to her, I looked, she was right behind me, and I said, My name is Scott, and I'm part of a courage movement called Scare Your Soul. And I like buying cups of coffee for strangers and having conversations with people because it pushes me out of my comfort zone. Would you allow me to buy you a cup of coffee? <laughs> she said yes. And we had this beautiful conversation about her passion for tattoos, why she does it. Her husband was at home sick. So he was, I actually ended up buying a tea for him, which she brought home to her husband. And we had this beautiful interaction. And I ended up spending the day, Andrew on a high, like it was adrenaline in my system because I did something that pushed me. So that was my act yesterday. You have a, a lovely quote in your book from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I was thinking of that quote because we've talked about sort of small acts of courage with small things like getting over our nervousness of talking to strangers with tattoos. <laughs> but life throws to us sort of big, terrifying things. You know, that was just mildly scary. Whereas, you know, I know because we were talking beforehand, your mother is dealing with Parkinson's disease. Now, that feels to me like a, a whole different range of scariness. How does those sort of kind of big life scary things fit in with this concept? Sure. So like many of your listeners, I'm dealing with health issues in my family. My mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's about five years ago, and she is struggling. And I care for her dearly. I can't think of a better mom that I could have ever had in this world. And it is, of course, something that creates a tremendous amount of fear in me as I contemplate losing her, contemplate mortality in general. And I'll tell you where I think courage intersects here, or at least my view of it. My view of courage isn't that I'm going to supersede this reality and somehow make this something that it's not. I am fearful. I'm fearful of losing her. I'm fearful of her losing her faculties. But here's where I think my courage steps in. I sit with her and I'm honest with her about my feelings. I sit with her and I ask her how she is really feeling, not the fake superficial stuff, but how is she really feeling? We talk about what life might look like when she's not there. We talk about what life will look like and her wishes for me after she's no longer with us. To me, that's the kind of courage I want to express in this moment. And it isn't about somehow coming in and saving the day, which I can't. It isn't about denying reality, which I can't. And it is about how I can be in this moment courageously. So what does courage look like to me? Honesty. It means acceptance. It means love. All of those things require courage in a moment where the outcome of life is not what you would have chosen. And Andrew, if you know, that is life. And I coach and I speak and teach and love this work. And I oftentimes think very much about action over outcome. That if we can focus on the courageous action in the moment, the thing that we can do, 
the thing that we do have control over versus trying to engineer an outcome that we may or may not have control over in the future. That to me is the magic. So can I solve this horrific situation? I can't. But what I can do is courageously step into conversation with her. So focus on the action you can do today and be courageous in that action. Correct. And I will tell you, you know, wonderful, wonderful Professor Dan Gilbert and others have written about our human predilection towards wanting to figure out the future. <laughs> that that we think if we do A, B, C, and D, that E, F, and G will absolutely happen, right? If we speak to this person and network at this event, we're going to get a promotion and get a salary, and that's going to make us happier, and we're going to buy that house, and I know exactly where that house is. It's going to be gorgeous, and that means that I'm going to get a mate, and that's going to be fantastic, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and the reality is that we actually don't know. There are so many millions and billions of variables that could impact our lives. That to me, courage exists in the moment. Courage exists in the moment. What can I do right now that would be brave and giving and open and vulnerable and passionate? That's what I want to do. And oftentimes people put off being courageous because they're expecting to do it at a later time. I'll do something big when I have a bank account that looks like this, or I'll do, I'm going to quit my job when I lose all that weight and uh, these things happen to me so that I can quit my job. No. What can I do today that will push my comfort zone that will lead me to growth, connection, love, passion? So what do you suggest that are, you know, let's imagine that people have got inspired they're going to take up your challenge to do one scary thing tomorrow. Let's yeah. just stick with tomorrow or even later sure. today. What would you suggest? So number one is I would ask them to pay attention to their bodies and to their minds. So much of what the fear response does in us when we're confronted with something that is fear-inducing is it happens so quickly and we react and we step back immediately from an interaction. I'll give you an example. You're on a bus or a subway. Somebody sits next to you or comes close to you and you are debating about whether to kind of meet eyes with that person. You think to yourself, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is, I don't know that person. It's unsafe. I, I don't know. I can't do it. In the moment, your body is telling you don't do it because it's what you always do. You always open up your phone or you're, you, you open up a book and you and you focus on your own world. Paying attention to your body means I feel a sense of tightness or I feel a sense of unease. Instead of just recoiling, let's explore that feeling. Why am I feeling that? And what would happen if I actually sat with that for a second or two and then acted, acted with a sense of kindness or joy? This is just like buying a cup of coffee for a stranger that you know that person is behind you and you have that moment where you're about ready to turn back and say something to them. And that's that moment of choice. So number one, I would say, pay attention to your body. And when you have that feeling of unease or of tightness in your shoulders or butterflies in your stomach, ask yourself, can I step into this moment? Whatever that moment might be. Now, if somebody is looking for something tangible, I would say that the most powerful, well, I'll give you two powerful actions. One is to communicate with somebody out of a sense of gratitude. Either call an old friend, call a loved one, 
and just say, I'm reaching out to you because I love you. That is difficult. It is difficult, but it is one of the most beautiful, powerful, courageous, and simple things that we can do. If your listeners could just pick up the phone today and call one person and say, no reason other than I love you, that's it. That is such an act of courage. And isn't it weird that something like I love you is so difficult to say? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. You know, human beings, and I write about this extensively in the book, you know, our bodies and minds train us towards homeostasis, towards doing the same thing consistently so that our so that we can be safe and and that we don't enter situations or interactions that will be harmful for us. But because our bodies and our minds push us towards that, it limits us from doing all of the things that we could do. Think about me singing in front of a restaurant. It had no cost to it. It took me seven minutes and it changed my entire life. It literally did. It set me on a course where I lead now the most interesting, passionate, incredible life where I get to work with people and encourage a sense of positivity and courage. So what would that mean if your listeners did that every single day? I would start with that act of reaching out and just saying, I love you to somebody. If they really wanted to kind of take it up a notch and do something that really pushed them is I would have a tough conversation that you're avoiding. You're a hard taskmaster. Listen, this is Andrew. Life is to be lived. (laughs) And we all have conversations out there that we should and could be having. And they could be very, very simple, but we're avoiding them. So I would encourage if somebody really feels like they want to tackle something a little bit more energetic is to have a tough conversation with somebody. I will tell you at the end of the day, People get locked up in, oh my gosh, what should I do? And I have to brainstorm a list and I have to create it. And I do, I do have, you know, hundreds of ideas in the book. The book is as much a workbook as it is a, a set of stories and, and research and, and prose. But I think as long as we are spending our days paying attention, you will find numerous opportunities to step into a moment of courage, whether it's about a relationship, whether it's about your own body and your own physical nature, a concept of awe. Can you step into a moment of awe in nature or in art? A moment of forgiveness, as I mentioned before, this powerful work of forgiveness and something else, and that is the act of creation. How often are we avoiding painting, drawing, sharing an idea, those things where we bring something new into this world. And we so oftentimes don't do that because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of what others are going to think of us. Small acts, that begins what Alex Korb calls the upward spiral. So you have seven principles for leading a courageous life. Gratitude, adventure, energy, curiosity, awe, forgiveness, and work. Which do people have the biggest problem with? (laughs) That's a very good question because we have a quiz on our website. And I can tell you very clearly that curiosity is the one that I think most people take for granted and have the hardest time engaging in. Curiosity requires, as we talked about before, a beautiful sense of listening, of openness. Can I tell you a quick story? 
a number of years ago, I went on a date with somebody we had met on a dating app, and I was terribly late to our date. I had to run eight blocks because I had to park very far away. So not only was I late, but I was sweating profusely, and the date started terribly, and it went terribly. This woman, Jen, and I, the conversation felt very superficial. We ended the date after about 45 minutes. At the end of it, she told me that she was unfortunately going through some treatments. Her sister had died of brain cancer, and she was suffering from a very similar ailment. And it really softened my heart. And even though our date didn't go well, I gave her a big hug. And a couple weeks later, one of our Scarier Soul challenges, we have a weekly challenge for free, was to do Arthur Aaron's 36 questions, which if your listeners don't know, a sociologist named Arthur Aaron created 36 questions that if you ask somebody and they ask you, creates a beautiful sense of intimacy. And our challenge was to ask a stranger these 36 questions. Well, I picked up the phone and I called Jen and I said, I know we had a terrible date and I know we're almost strangers. Would you do these questions with me? She said, absolutely, yes. She came to my house with a bottle of wine and we asked each other these 36 questions, uh, created a level of connection between us and she became a soulmate to me. She became a, a soul sister. One superficial conversation in a bar led us nowhere. But one similar conversation where we really listened to each other and got vulnerable and deep and curious created a beautiful bond between us. I'll tell you, very unfortunately, she passed away a couple of years ago, but her memory continues to inspire me to promote the concept of curiosity, of vulnerability and of reaching deep into conversation with people to really understand what they're all about and allow them to see you in your fullest. So of all of those principles, that sense of curiosity is such a beautifully connecting experience. That's where I would suggest that many, many people kind of begin their journey. Actually, interesting those questions, because I use those to inspire me to create a set of questions to ask your partner rather than a stranger. And uh, those are in a book of mine called Can We Start Again? So if you want to challenge and scare yourself, I have a whole set of questions that are designed. They start easily and they just get more, the curiosity level goes up and up. Uh, Because the problem is with our partners, we think we can read them like a book. We have lost our curiosity about our partners. You know, we see them every day. And we don't even know the tiniest part of them. Human beings are terribly complex people. (laughs) And yeah, I think if you want to scare yourself, look at those questions. (laughs) Wonderful. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to look at something scary that's been sent in to us. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
One of the ways of participating in this programme is sending in a letter to us so I can discuss it with one of my witnesses here on The Meaningful Life. You can also find details about how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and help us fund this programme. And you'll find all those at www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And this is the letter that we've been sent to discuss today. I feel that there's a slow puncture in my marriage and all the air is coming out. On a day-to-day basis, it's good enough and sometimes more than good, but it's being let down by my wife's negativity, sometimes aimed at me, but more often about life in general. It is exhausting, but I just nod along as I know from experience that if I do anything else, it will end up in a pointless row. Throw in habits that I've lived with for many years, that have always set my teeth on edge, which I know if I raise them, I'd be told that's just me, and it's beginning to get me questioning everything. I sometimes wonder if my wife is fed up with me too. I have interests she finds faintly ridiculous. None of this adds up to a crisis, but I can feel one brewing. Can you say I've had enough and not have any good reasons, like infidelity, cruelty, or whatever, just deep exhaustion? Our parents will be upset, I think friends too, but we don't have children, so what's keeping us together beyond habit and a joint mortgage? Scott, this sounds like somebody who needs to have their soul scared, and but it seems <laughs> like at the same time he's in a really scary position. So how would you approach this? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that with me and with us. I think that the honesty inherent in that letter is something we can all identify with. We all end up in relationships and situations that create a sense of fear. And that's really what I see and hear when I hear those words, is a sense of fear. I think first off that what I'm not hearing this gentleman say is that he was able to have a deep conversation, an honest conversation about his needs. I think that He is, you know, making, as many of us do, assumptions about how things are going to go if he has that conversation. And he is avoiding, because in the past, it hasn't gone well. I honestly believe that if we voraciously leap into honest conversations with those that we love and care about and have a past history with that has connected us previously— that we have the opportunity to redefine what that relationship would look like. Here's, I think, what I would say to this person if they were in front of me. This is a marathon, not a sprint. This is an opportunity for you to begin a process of conversations with your significant other that will be grounded in honesty, that will have both positivity and reality and challenge included, I actually have a kind of a four-part conversational plan that I would suggest to him that he could have with his wife on an ongoing basis that would begin the process of them getting to know each other again. They have lost their spark, their zest, the mystery, the depth, the friction, the tension that needs to exist for a relationship to continue to grow. So my suggestion would be to ask his wife if they could have a weekly sit-down, the two of each other, mug of tea each, 
on the couch and to talk about four different things. One is what makes each other grateful for the other. Mm -hmm. The second is challenges that they have in life in general, not necessarily in the relationship, but what's really going on? Where are the challenges that they're facing in their lives? The third is what is unclear between the two of them? Not broken, not terrible, not horrendous, but what feels unclear? And then the last would be, what do they love about the other person? And I would counsel that, as, uh, as is my, uh, my way in, in, in the work that I do in my book, is that these are not one-shot deals. These are long-term trust-building, confidence-building, vulnerability-building opportunities that we have with those in our lives. So I would counsel that they begin that process and see it through. So let me just recap that. The first one is what you're grateful about in the world in general. The second one is your general challenges. The third one, what is unclear and that you don't understand? And I assume that's about the other person's behaviour. So I don't understand, for example, why cleanliness is so important for you. Could you please explain to me? And the final one is what do you love about the other person? Yes. And I've worked with many, many people who just felt so stuck and so fearful. And this has some, has a way of kind of opening that door in a way that people, you know, reduce their defensiveness. They reduce their sense of fear because this really isn't about blaming. This isn't about complaining. It's really about understanding and you're, you're including your sense of love. You're including your sense of gratitude. I oftentimes feel that when clients get to the level of what's unclear, that's really where the work gets done. You know, that's, that's really this beautiful area. And again, Andrew, it's, it's not easy. None of this work is easy, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And I think if you tell your wife the questions in advance, I think she would be much more willing to do it because, you know, the fear would be that we're going to sit down and I'm going to list the four things that I hate about you the most. That would, you know, (laughs) that's going to be the expectation. And this is something I'd like to add to this. When we think of emotional honesty, we think that it's a chance for us to tell the other person what's wrong with them. We think that's what emotional honesty is. But actually, true emotional honesty is about the stuff that you're doing wrong yourself. So if you're going to be really emotional honest, you can say, you know, one of my problems is that I expect you to be negative and therefore I often hear negativity when it isn't there. And, you know, I must be more open-minded. And that sort of making it about yourself and about being emotionally honest yourself is going to be much more door opening than saying, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth about how I feel. You're so bloody negative. Well, which do you think is going to get a better response out of those two? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it takes courage to be consistent with this, to make it a practice. I encourage people to calendar it so that it's not something that slides off the schedule and really make it a priority. Again, not easy, but it is such a beautiful, liberating experience for a couple. And I, I really do believe that this gentleman who wrote that very, very honest and self-aware letter would benefit from an ongoing set of 
conversations with his significant other about this. And really, that's what life is all about. As you said, we are all these complex organisms with pasts and presents and ruminations and thoughts and dreams about the future. And we intersect with one another. And the opportunities that we have to step into moments of curiosity and learning and connection, while not always easy, to me, that's what life is truly all about. I mean, that's that's why we're here. And this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. I, I certainly hope that this gentleman follows this, and I, I'd love to hear him write us back in six months and tell us how it's going. So thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Well, my children certainly make my life meaningful. They are a rock. I became a, a single parent very early on, and my children to me are both growth activators and allow me to show love in my life. So to me, that's what makes my life the most meaningful. I would also say my ability to connect with others in a way that feels vibrant and meaningful is something that just adds so much beauty to my daily life. So it's interesting what you were saying about becoming a single father early on. Unfortunately, this is where the conversation has to end. But if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, we're going to mine the knowledge that Scott got from his divorce because he now counsels men on the threshold of divorce about what they need to know. So that's what we're going to be discussing in the bonus material of The Meaningful Life. And we would love it if you could um, become a supporter of The Meaningful Life because it costs to produce this and it would be nice to have some help with that. So if you'd like to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.